Section six of the Trial of Susan B. Anthony by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Argument of Mr. Selden for the defendant continued. Although not directly connected with the argument as to the right secured to women by the Constitution, I deem it not improper to allude briefly to some of the popular objections against the propriety of allowing females the privilege of voting. I do this because I know from past experience that these popular objections, having no logical bearing upon the subject, are yet, practically, among the most potent arguments against the interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment, which I consider the only one that its language fairly admits of. It is said that women do not desire to vote. Certainly many women do not, but that furnishes no reason for denying the right to those who do desire to vote. Many men decline to vote. Is that a reason for denying the right to those who would vote? I believe, however, that the public mind is greatly in error in regard to the proportion of female citizens who would vote if their right to do so were recognized. In England there has been, to some extent, a test of that question, with the following result, as given in the newspapers, the correctness of which in this respect I think there is no reason to doubt. Woman suffrage is, to a certain extent, established in England, with the result, as detailed in the London Examiner, that in sixty-six municipal elections, out of every one thousand women who enjoy equal rights with men on the register, five hundred and sixteen went to the poll, which is but forty-eight less than the proportionate number of men. And out of twenty-seven thousand nine hundred and forty-nine women registered, where a contest occurred, fourteen thousand four hundred and sixteen voted. Of men there were one hundred and sixty-six thousand seven hundred and eighty-one on the register, and ninety thousand eighty at the poll. The examiner thereupon draws this conclusion. Making allowance for the reluctance of old spinsters to change their habits, and the more frequent illness of the sex, it is manifest that women, if they had opportunity, would exercise the franchise as freely as men. There is an end, therefore, of the argument that women would not vote if they had the power. Our law-books furnish, perhaps, more satisfactory evidence of the earnestness with which women in England are claiming the right to vote, under the Reform Act of 1867, aided by Lord Brougham's Act of 1850. The case of Chorlton, appellant, versus Ling's respondent, came before the Court of Common Pleas in England in 1869. It was an appeal from the decision of the revising barrister, for the borough of Manchester, to the effect that Mary Abbott, being a woman, was not entitled to be placed on the register. Her right was perfect, in all respects, excepting that of sex. The court, after a very full and able discussion of the subject, sustained the decision of the revising barrister, denying to women the right to be placed on the register, and consequently denying their right to vote. The decision rested upon the peculiar phraseology of several Acts of Parliament, and the point decided has no applicability here. My object in referring to the case has been to call attention to the fact, stated by the reporter, 
that appeals of five thousand four hundred and thirty-six other women were consolidated and decided with this no better evidence could be furnished of the extent and earnestness of the claim of women in england to exercise the elective franchise law reporter common pleas volume four page three seventy four i infer without being able to say how the fact is that the votes given by women as mentioned in the newspapers were given at municipal elections merely and that the cases decided by the court of common pleas relate to elections for members of parliament another objection is that the right to hold office must attend the right to vote and that women are not qualified to discharge the duties of responsible offices i beg leave to answer this objection by asking one or more questions how many of the male bipeds who do our voting are qualified to hold high offices how many of the large class to whom the right of voting is supposed to have been secured by the fifteenth amendment are qualified to hold office whenever the qualifications of persons to discharge the duties of responsible offices is made the test of their right to vote and we are to have a competitive examination on the subject open to all claimants my client will be content to enter the lists and take her chances among the candidates for such honors but the practice of the world and our own practice give the lie to this objection compare the administration of female sovereigns of great kingdoms from semiramis to victoria with the average administration of male sovereigns and which will suffer by the comparison how often have mothers governed large kingdoms as regents during the minority of their sons and governed them well such offices as the sovereigns who rule them in this country have allowed women to hold they having no voice on the subject they have discharged the duties of with ever-increasing satisfaction to the public and congress has lately passed an act making the official bonds of married women valid so that they could be appointed to the office of postmaster the case of olive versus ingraham volume seven modern reporter page two sixty three was an action brought to try the title to an office on the death of the sexton of the parish of st butolph the place was to be filled by election the voters being the housekeepers who paid scot and lot in the parish the widow of the deceased sexton sarah bly entered the lists against olive the plaintiff in the suit and received one hundred and sixty-nine indisputable votes and forty votes given by women who were housekeepers and paid to church and poor the plaintiff had one hundred and seventy-four indisputable votes and twenty-two votes given by such women as voted for mrs bly mrs bly was declared elected the action was brought to test two questions one whether the women were legal voters and two whether a woman was capable of holding the office the case was four times argued in the king's bench and all the judges delivered opinions holding that the women were competent voters that the widow was properly elected and could hold the office in the course of the discussion it was shown that women had held many offices those of constable churchwarden overseer of the poor keeper of the gatehouse a public prison governess of a house of correction keeper of castles sheriffs of counties and high constable of england 
if women are legally competent to hold minor offices i would be glad to have the rule of law or of propriety shown which should exclude them from higher offices and which marks the line between those which they may hold and those which they may not hold another objection is that women cannot serve as soldiers to this i answer that the capacity for military service has never been made a test of the right to vote if it were young men from sixteen to twenty-one would be entitled to vote and old men from sixty upwards would not if that were the test some women would present much stronger claims than many of the male sex another objection is that engaging in political controversies is not consistent with the female character upon that subject women themselves are the best judges and if political duties should be found inconsistent with female delicacy we may rest assured that women will either effect a change in the character of political contests or decline to engage in them this subject may be safely left to their sense of delicacy and propriety if any difficulty on this account should occur it may not be impossible to receive the votes of women at their places of residence this method of voting was practised in ancient rome under the republic and it will be remembered that when the votes of the soldiers who were fighting our battles in the southern states were needed to sustain their friends at home no difficulty was found in the way of taking their votes at their respective camps i humbly submit to your honour therefore that on the constitutional grounds to which i have referred miss anthony had a lawful right to vote that her vote was properly received and counted that the first section of the fourteenth amendment secured to her that right and did not need the aid of any further legislation but conceding that i may be in error in supposing that miss anthony had a right to vote she has been guilty of no crime if she voted in good faith believing that she had such a right this proposition appears to me so obvious that were it not for the severity to my client of the consequences which may follow a conviction i should not deem it necessary to discuss it to make out the offence it is incumbent on the prosecution to show affirmatively not only that the defendant knowingly voted but that she so voted knowing that she had no right to vote that is the term knowingly applies not to the fact of voting but to the fact of want of right any other interpretation of the language would be absurd we cannot conceive of a case where a party could vote without knowledge of the fact of voting and to apply the term knowingly to the mere act of voting would make nonsense of the statute this word was inserted as defining the essence of the offence and it limits the criminality to cases where the voting is not only done without right but where it is done wilfully with a knowledge that it is without right short of that there is no offence within the statute this would be so upon well-established principles even if the word knowingly had been omitted but that word was inserted to prevent the possibility of any doubt on that subject and to furnish security against the inability of stupid or prejudiced judges or jurors to distinguish between wilful wrong and innocent mistake if the statute had been merely if at any election for representative in congress any person shall vote without having a lawful right to vote such person shall be deemed guilty of a crime 
there could have been justly no conviction under it without proof that the party voted knowing that he had not a right to vote if he voted innocently supposing he had the right to vote but had not it would not be an offence within the statute an innocent mistake is not a crime and no amount of judicial decisions can make it such mr bishop says volume one criminal law section two o five there can be no crime unless a culpable intent accompanies the criminal act the same author volume one criminal practice section five twenty one repeated in other words the same idea in order to render a party criminally responsible a vicious will must concur with a wrongful act i quote from a more distinguished author felony is always accompanied with an evil intention and therefore shall not be imputed to a mere mistake or misanimadversion as where persons break open a door in order to execute a warrant which will not justify such proceeding effectio enim tua nomen imponet operi tuo item crimen non contrahitor nisi nocendi voluntas intercedat which as i understand may read for your volition puts the name upon your act and a crime is not committed unless the will of the offender takes part in it volume one hawkins p c page twenty nine chapter eighty five section three this quotation by hawkins is i believe from bracton which carries the principle back to a very early period in the existence of the common law it is a principle however which underlies all law and must have been recognized at all times wherever criminal law has been administered with even the slightest reference to the principles of common morality and justice i quote again on this subject from mr bishop the doctrine of the intent as it prevails in the criminal law is necessarily one of the foundation principles of public justice there is only one criterion by which the guilt of a man is to be tested it is whether the mind is criminal criminal law relates only to crime and neither in philosophical speculation nor in religious or moral sentiment would any people in any age allow that a man should be deemed guilty unless his mind was so it is therefore a principle of our legal system as probably it is of every other that the essence of an offence is the wrongful intent without which it cannot exist volume one bishop's criminal law section two eighty seven again the same author writing on the subject of knowledge as necessary to establish the intent says it is absolutely necessary to constitute guilt as in indictments for uttering forged tokens or other attempts to defraud or for receiving stolen goods and offences of a similar description volume one criminal practice section five o four in regard to the offence of obtaining property by false pretences the author says the indictment must allege that the defendant knew the pretences to be false this is necessary upon the general principles of the law in order to show an offence even though the statute does not contain the word knowingly volume two same work section one seventy two as to a presumed knowledge of the law where the fact involves a question of law 
the same author says, the general doctrine laid down in the foregoing sections, that is, that every man is presumed to know the law, and that ignorance of the law does not excuse, is plain in itself and plain in its application. Still there are cases, the precise nature and extent of which are not so obvious, wherein ignorance of the law constitutes, in a sort of indirect way, not in itself a defence, but a foundation on which another defence rests. Thus, if the guilt or innocence of a prisoner depends on the fact to be found by the jury, of his having been or not when he did the act in some precise mental condition, which mental condition is the gist of the offence, the jury, in determining this question of mental condition, may take into consideration his ignorance or misinformation in a matter of law. For example, to constitute larceny there must be an intent to steal, which involves the knowledge that the property taken does not belong to the taker. Yet, if all the facts concerning the title are known to the accused, and so the question is one merely of law, whether the property is his or not, still he may show, and the showing will be a defence to him against the criminal proceeding, that he honestly believed it was his through a misapprehension of the law. Volume 1, Criminal Law, Section 297 The conclusions of the writer here are correct, but in a part of the statement the learned author has thrown some obscurity over his own principles. The doctrines elsewhere enunciated by him show with great clearness that in such cases the state of the mind constitutes the essence of the offence. And if the state of the mind which the law condemns does not exist in connection with the act, there is no offence. It is immaterial whether its non-existence be owing to ignorance of law or ignorance of fact. In either case, the fact which the law condemns, the criminal intent, is wanting. It is not, therefore, in an indirect way that ignorance of the law in such cases constitutes a defence, but in the most direct way possible. It is not a fact that jurors may take into consideration or not at their pleasure, but which they must take into consideration, because, in case the ignorance exists, no matter from what cause, the offence which the statute describes is not committed. In such case, ignorance of the law is not interposed as a shield to one committing a criminal act, but merely to show, as it does show, that no criminal act has been committed. I quote from Sir Matthew Hale on the subject. Speaking of larceny, the learned author says, As it is, sepit and asportivit, so it must be felonis or animo ferandi. Otherwise it is not a felony, for it is the mind that makes the taking of another's goods to be a felony, or a bare trespass only. But because the intention and mind are secret, the intention must be judged of by the circumstances of the fact. And these circumstances are various, and may sometimes deceive, yet regularly and ordinarily these circumstances following direct in the case. If A, thinking that he hath a title to the house of B, seizeth it as his own, this regularly makes no felony, but a trespass only. But yet this may be a trick to colour a felony, and the ordinary discovery of a felonious intent is, if the party doth it secretly, 
or being charged with the goods denies it volume one hales p c page five o nine i concede that if miss anthony voted knowing that as a woman she had no right to vote she may properly be convicted and that if she had dressed herself in men's apparel and assumed a man's name or resorted to any other artifice to deceive the board of inspectors the jury might properly regard her claim of right to be merely colorable and might in their judgment pronounce her guilty of the offence charged in case the constitution has not secured to her the right she claimed all i claim is that if she voted in perfect good faith believing that it was her right she committed no crime an innocent mistake whether of law or fact though a wrongful act may be done in pursuance of it cannot constitute a crime the following cases and authorities were referred to and commented upon by the counsel as sustaining his positions u s versus conover volume three mclean's reports page five seventy three the state versus macdonald volume four harrington page five fifty five the state versus holmes volume seventeen missouri page three seventy nine rex versus hall volume three c and p page four o nine south carolina volume fourteen english common law the queen versus reed volume one c and m page three o six south carolina volume forty one english common law lancaster's case volume three leon page two o eight starkey on ev part four volume two page eight twenty eight third american edition the counsel then said there are some cases which i concede cannot be reconciled with the position which i have endeavored to maintain and i am sorry to say that one of them is found in the reports of this state as the other cases are referred to in that and the principle if they can be said to stand on any principle is in all of them the same it will only be incumbent on me to notice that one that case is not only irreconcilable with the numerous authorities and the fundamental principles of criminal law to which i have referred but the enormity of its injustice is sufficient alone to condemn it i refer to the case of hamilton versus the people volume fifty seven barb page seven twenty five in that case hamilton had been convicted of a misdemeanor in having voted at a general election after having been previously convicted of a felony and sentenced to two years imprisonment in the state prison and not having been pardoned the conviction having by law deprived him of citizenship and right to vote unless pardoned and restored to citizenship the case came up before the general term of the supreme court on writ of error it appeared that on the trial evidence was offered that before the prisoner was discharged from the state prison he and his father applied to the governor for a pardon and that the governor replied in writing that on the ground of the prisoner's being a minor at the time of his discharge from prison a pardon would not be necessary and that he would be entitled to all the rights of a citizen on his coming of age they also applied to two respectable counsellors of the supreme court and they confirmed the governor's opinion 
all this evidence was rejected it appeared that the prisoner was seventeen years old when convicted of the felony and was nineteen when discharged from prison the rejection of the evidence was approved by the supreme court on the ground that the prisoner was bound to know the law and was presumed to do so and his conviction was accordingly confirmed here a young man innocent so far as his conduct in this case was involved was condemned for acting in good faith upon the advice mistaken advice it may be conceded of one governor and two lawyers to whom he applied for information as to his rights and this condemnation has proceeded upon the assumed ground conceded to be false in fact that he knew the advice given to him was wrong on this judicial fiction this young man in the name of justice is sent to prison punished for a mere mistake and a mistake made in pursuance of such advice it cannot be consistently with the radical principles of criminal law to which i have referred and the numerous authorities which i have quoted that this man was guilty of a crime that his mistake was a crime and i think the judges who pronounced his condemnation upon their own principles better than their victim deserved the punishment which they inflicted the condemnation of miss anthony her good faith being conceded would do no less violence to any fair administration of justice one other matter will close what i have to say miss anthony believed and was advised that she had a right to vote she may also have been advised as was clearly the fact that the question as to her right could not be brought before the courts for trial without her voting or offering to vote and if either was criminal the one was as much so as the other therefore she stands now arraigned as a criminal for taking the only steps by which it was possible to bring the great constitutional question as to her right before the tribunals of the country for adjudication if for thus acting in the most perfect good faith with motives as pure and impulses as noble as any which can find place in your honour's breast in the administration of justice she is by the laws of her country to be condemned as a criminal she must abide the consequences her condemnation however under such circumstances would only add another most weighty reason to those which i have already advanced to show that women need the aid of the ballot for their protection upon the remaining question of the good faith of the defendant it is not necessary for me to speak that she acted in most perfect good faith stands conceded thanking your honor for the great patience with which you have listened to my two extended remarks i submit the legal questions which the case involves for your honor's consideration end of section six